What's beneath the surface of true crime? Uncover brings you there with premium investigations that demand justice. Each season delves into a distinct case, from the inner workings of a cult to the disturbing legacy of residential schools. Promising new content year-round, Uncover will take you on a journey through explosive revelations with hosts dedicated to revealing the truth. Uncover, the best in true crime. Find it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I am in Khartoum right now. I'm actually in Khartoum East, or the eastern part of Khartoum. Reem Abbas is a journalist and activist based in the capital of Sudan, which over the last couple of weeks has descended into chaos. People have not really slept for many nights because of the fighting. The houses have been bombarded. People have been shot inside their houses by the stray bullets. Uh, some neighborhoods have been- Hundreds have been killed and thousands injured and displaced since fighting broke out between the country's military and the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF, who are Sudan's largest paramilitary group. Fightings are still ongoing in Khartoum. Local sources tell me that uh, they can still hear gunfights, they can still hear loud explosions, they can still see jet fighters in the sky bombing several parts of the city, probably uh, rapid support forces, uh, buildings and bases. I'm with my family right now, my parents, my sister and my daughter, who's almost five. Uh, So we're just all staying in my parents' house together, sheltering in. Reem talked to us a few days ago on WhatsApp over a shaky internet connection in between power outages. Uh, Some neighborhoods have not seen water for days. People are thirsty in some parts. People are hungry in some parts because some of the supermarkets were looted or others were bombed or they were destroyed or they were closed by the owners because they're worried about their business. So it is a situation where some people are hungry, some people are thirsty, some people are both. But the reality is everyone feels insecure. In 2019, Sudan's longtime dictator Omar al-Bashir was ousted in a popular uprising. Since then, the RSF and the army had been allies. They took control of the country and promised that they'd steer Sudan towards democracy. A lot of Sudanese people didn't buy it, but the generals did get a lot of support from the West. Now, with no signs of the fighting dying down, international diplomats pulling out, and fears that the conflict could spill over into neighboring countries, we're going to look back at what happened. How did the relationship between the RSF and the army fall apart? What was the role of the international community and Western diplomats in particular? And what does this all mean for the future of Sudan? I'm Tamara Kandakar, and this is Nothing is Foreign.
So Reem, a lot of people are leaving Sudan right now to escape the violence. Is that something that you're thinking about at all? Actually, we're very close to the road that leads to Al Jazeera. I would say hundreds, if not thousands of families have actually uh, fled to Al Jazeera seeking safety from the capital. My family has taken the decision not to leave for now. This could change, but we feel that uh, we have to resist and people should stay put because this is our city. So we should also be part of its um, sorrows that we should be here and hopefully that this will end very soon and then people can start rebuilding. I can completely understand why you want to stay and that's that's really brave. Do you think that there is a point at which you would consider leaving? Like how much worse would things have to get? I think it's never an easy decision, especially when you have parents who are on medication, when I have a little girl and I, and I do worry, you know, and sometimes when there's shooting, we have to like, really stay in one room and huddle up, you know, or like sleep on the floor. So it's it has not been easy. I feel that right now our area is relatively safe. But what would really push me to leave is lack of like food items, um, lack of medicine. So if it does reach a point where you can't really buy food because, you know, because of the looting, because factories have stopped producing stuff and because nothing is really working anymore. And then this is a point where you really do have to leave because it's not only about your security, it's also about you being able to exist as a human being. So I feel that this could be a breaking point. Yeah, that makes sense. I've also read that around 70% of hospitals in Khartoum and neighboring states have been forced to close. The Sudanese Doctors Syndicate says 39 out of 59 basic hospitals in the capital and other conflict-affected areas are now shut. Some clinics have been bombed while others have closed due to a lack of supplies. Sudan's Doctors Committee says it's struggling to treat the injured. I'm wondering, do you have a hospital near you in case anything happens, a hospital that's still open? This is definitely quite scary. And um, I think right now, this is why a lot of people are really trying their best to uh, to stay safe, because if you do get injured or if you do get shot or something, um, it's uh, especially in the first few days, it was very difficult for people to access medical services. Um, but I think in our area so far, we have a few functioning hospitals and we're considered lucky. Do you by any chance know anyone who has been injured so far or killed in the violence? Acquaintances and relatives have been injured and have been killed uh, even inside their homes due to the war. And um, many actually right now in many people are sharing information, many WhatsApp groups and following people who are having operations and following people who have lost children, who have lost uh, parents actually uh, in this conflict. I'm still processing all of this. Uh, I mean, this happened during the month of Ramadan, which is a holy month for Muslims. It's interesting just to think about how just a few days before that we were out, we were having fun, we were going to, uh, you know, different concerts, we were meeting friends. And uh, I, I knew that this confrontation between the RSF and the armed forces is going to happen. I knew it was a matter of time, but to just kind of think about how uh, our worries were just very different just last week. It's just, uh, it's just crazy, basically. Um, it's, it's not easy to cope with this, especially uh, when there's fighting near my house. It's very scary. I'm worried about my family. 
I also feel helpless because right now it's very difficult and dangerous to move around. And a lot of people in many places need help. I think this feeling of helplessness is really just what's, um, what's bothering me. Uh, also, I'm, uh, I'm worried about so many things right now, you know, about plans, about, um, you know, work, about my ability to uh, to make an income, about my assets. You know, we, we we don't really have anything outside. I mean, this is where we're rooted. This is our country. And this is where, uh, you know, if we have to leave, we are just going to be in very difficult circumstances, unfortunately. So uh, it's definitely giving me a lot of anxiety. Reem is worried, but she's optimistic enough about this ending quickly that, for now, she says she's going to stay in Khartoum. Even as a number of countries, including Canada, are scrambling to get citizens out, there have already been a few short ceasefires that have been broken, and the two generals on either side have so far ignored calls for negotiations to end the crisis. This is a really complicated situation, and we wanted to get someone who's been covering Sudan for a long time to help explain it. Matt Nashed is a freelance journalist and analyst based in Cairo. Hey, Matt, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it as well. Yeah. So I wanted to start with the two main players in this conflict. Can you just break down for me who is on either side of the fighting? So the fighting is between, um, right now, the military or the army, Sudanese army, and a paramilitary force um, known as the Rapid Support Forces. Um, the leader of the army uh, right now, his name is Abdel Fattah Burhan. And Burhan, he came to power shortly after a popular uprising pressured security generals to dispose of former authoritarian leader Omar al-Bashir in uh, 2019. Uh, on the other side, we have a man named uh, Mohammed Hamdan Daglu, who goes by the name Himiti, which means uh, baby Mohammed in, in Arabic. And Himiti, he is in many ways uh, a creation of the army um, because he comes from humble backgrounds um, outside of the military institution. And he essentially accumulated his power through conflicts in the peripheries um, that was outsourced by the army. So it's sort of in a way right now we're having a conflict of the, the, the son of the military, which is this paramilitary, the rapid support forces, now kind of biting the hand that fed it for so long. And tell me a bit more about the RSF, the rapid support forces, which is this paramilitary fighting force. Where did it come from and how powerful is it? It's incredibly powerful. So the Rapid Support Forces, its origins um, date back probably to, I mean, it's debatable, but 2003, 2004, um, at the zenith of the uh, crisis in the western province of Sudan, uh, known as Darfur. The conflict in Darfur began in 2003, when ethnic African rebels took up arms against Omar al-Bashir's Arab-dominated government. Bashir responded by arming local militias known as the Janjaweed. They burned villages and killed anyone that got in their way. So this campaign led to calls of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and even genocide. 
and it's the origins of these militias that were then repackaged almost a decade later by Omar al-Bashir, then um, autocratic president of Sudan, into the rapid support forces. Okay, so the RSF came out of the militias that were fighting on behalf of the Sudanese government during that time. And until recently, the RSF and the army, they were allies. But let's take a step back and walk people through how we got to where we are now. I'm just going to do a quick recap. So in 2018, like you mentioned, there was a popular uprising and mass protests to get rid of longtime dictator Omar al-Bashir. And after he was toppled, the RSF and the army joined a coalition with civilian political parties and they formed a transitional government. And the idea was that the army and the RSF would oversee the first part of the transition and then a civilian government would take over for the second part of the transition before elections would bring in a democratically elected government this year, 2023. But what happened in 2021 was that just weeks before the handover was supposed to happen, they upended the whole thing, they staged a coup, and they took away control from the civilians. So why don't we start there? Why did the RSF and the military not want to hand over power to civilian leaders? Well, the reason that they gave was that the civilians were too divided and, and they needed to um, you know, preserve the stability and security of the country. The real reason, uh, most likely, is that they have kleptocratic control over very, very lucrative sectors in the economy. And they were afraid that if a civilian was going to have the top position in the uh, transitional government, um, once the, the hats switch from military to civilian, that then the, those interests would be under threat. Some of these sectors, for instance, that both Himiti and Burhan control range from gold to gum Arabic, which is almost a substance that you can find in just everything you can think of from glue to erasers to also sesame as well. And, and these are very money-making exports. And that's maybe the, that's the fundamental reason. Uh, to a lesser extent, there was concerns that perhaps later in the future, that these generals might be, there might be investigations into both of these men and their forces for crimes they had committed during the uprising and during the period between um, when the generals took power from Bashir and when it was handed over finally to a civilian military government. However, I, I never thought that this was a real serious fear from them. I think at the end it was that they were worried that uh, their control over the economy would be significantly compromised. All right. So... Those are the reasons they may not have wanted to hand over power, the biggest one likely being control of the economy. But when they staged the coup in 2021, they promised that there would still be a democratic transition. So what happened after that? You know the saying like, uh, or I don't know if it's even the saying, but maybe just good to sound advice of friends, you know? Judge by what they do or how they treat you. Don't judge by what they say to you. You know what I mean? And uh, and I think it's the same story, actually, with these military generals, right? Uh, you know, they would um, unconstitutionally wage a military coup, which upends a, a civilian transition by arms, 
and then say that they believe in civilian politics. <laughs> well, it doesn't sound like you believe in civilian <laughs> politics if you're, you know, if you're overthrowing people with your weapons and your guns, right? So, so it, you know, like nobody took it serious after the coup. People had their reservations, I should mention just briefly, before the coup, because months before this uh, civilian uh, military arrangement in August 2019 were formed, in June, um, in protests, uh, there was a campsite where um, that had tens of thousands of people there that were outside of the military headquarters calling for the military to relinquish control to a civilian government and the RSF and the military and other security forces cooperated according to open source um, you know, evidence to massacre at least 120 people there. Soldiers opened fire early in the morning. Here is what it sounded like. Now, if we'd let that clip roll any longer, you would have seen some really distressing images, dead bodies, people frantically dragging them out of the way. And then two months later, they said they'll be part of a solution as part of civilian government. So it was the massacre, then there was the coup. And, uh, and so protesters really didn't want to give them the benefit of the doubt after the coup. Um, it was the last straw for them. So nobody believed it. So as a result, um, there were sustained mass protests um, after the coup for more than a year, almost a year and a half, a year and three months. Protesters chanted, no militia can rule a country in Sudan's capital on Thursday. After the signing of an agreement that provides for the formation of a civilian government was twice delayed. My name is Ian Urbina. I've reported on some pretty mind-blowing stories, but nothing like what happens at sea. If they got within 800 meters, that is when we would fire warning shots. Murder, slavery, human trafficking, and staggering environmental crimes. Men have told me that they've been beaten with stingray tails, with chains. If you really want to understand crime, start where the law of the land ends. The Outlaw Ocean. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. Just coming back to the tensions that we're seeing right now, how did the RSF and the military go from being allies in this process to the fighting that we're seeing right now? Many people warned that after the coup that their short-term interests aligned against civilians, but their long-term interests diverged from one another. One point of contention was that Burhan didn't have popular support, so he had to lean on Islamists from the former regime of Omar al-Bashir. And these Islamists detested him because they viewed him as, as one compromising their own control and aspirations to come back into control of the state and, and equally as somebody that turned on their boss. Uh, so that was one point of contention that, that separated them at the time. Um, but still both, a little bit more than a year and a half later in December, um, were convinced to sign a, a framework agreement that was UN and Western-backed. Um, the agreement aimed to uh, restore a civilian administration um, that would, in theory, have control over the security forces. And the issue with the framework agreement is that what happened was that it took the two most militarized actors in the country and it pitted their interests against each other. So the biggest question 
um, within the framework agreement was the absorption of the RSF into the army. You're talking about essentially rival security forces diluting their power. It's a very explosive, explosive process to just be done, rushed quickly. And they wanted to do this in the framework agreement in two hours. So what happened was that there was a lot of hostility in this meeting that took place. And maybe about two weeks later, a war broke out between them. So it was really this question of integration that was the catalyst. Right. So ultimately, the spark was this discussion over how quickly the RSF would be integrated into the army and trying to get that done too quickly. But can you tell me what the role of the West has been in all of this? And I bring it up because you mentioned the framework agreement was backed by the UN and the West. And we talked earlier about how civilian groups have been pushing back against military rule since 2021. But there are a lot of analysts, I think yourself included, who say that the U.S. and other Western countries didn't do enough to support those groups and that they put too much trust in the army and the RSF. So tell me more about that. Why do so many people blame the West? What happened was after the coup in October 2021, um, the West suspended, probably appropriately, a, a development aid and um, billions of dollars worth of debt relief to the country. So the country's economy obviously was not in great shape. A lot of people suffered as a result of it. And so I think the West just needed a piece of paper with a signature to justify restarting that aid immediately. And so this is what incentivized them to rush a political process despite the sensitivity of the issues within the framework agreement. And part of rushing to do that um, was that they didn't want to do the groundwork of building relationships with civil society groups or the pro-democracy movement. And the civilians were saying, no, you have to be careful because if you back these guys thinking that they will reform, in fact, what you're doing is you're creating a climate of impunity where they can kill us on the street, they can torture us, and at the same time, we're not incentivizing them at all to uphold to any promises they claim to make. And so the West didn't heed the warning. There is a lot of fear that this could blow up into a full-scale civil war. I'm seeing a lot of analysis and commentary along those lines. Why is that? And what do you think that could look like? I think we're already in a civil war, personally. Um, I think the fear is that it could become a much more messy civil war that potentially takes on an ethnic character. We could see recruiting or calls for recruiting in that case based on ethnicity or trying to get communities, incentivizing them and weaponizing them in order to settle scores against other communities. And then this is when we could see violence becoming more decentralized. And this can result, I think, in cases where because of just the diversity, the number of local disputes that are connected to national politics, it can create several conflicts within a conflict. And I think this is, this is the fear. Because if this takes place, 
then it's going to be significantly harder to broker a ceasefire. Earlier, I was talking to a journalist named Reem Abbas. She's in Khartoum right now, and she was echoing a lot of what you've been saying. And she was telling me how frustrated she was by the way that Western diplomats sidelined civilian groups. I, I, I really do believe that many diplomats and international agents don't really see that we should have democracy. I don't know how to phrase this in, a, in the right way, but I think there's a lot of um, perceptions that, you know, in this part of the world, we're just doomed to suffer. We're just doomed to living under military dictatorships, that we will just not have the kind of democratic regimes that are built elsewhere. It seems like there's a lot of people in Sudan who feel the same way. Do you think this situation might have been prevented if civilian voices had more of a say in, in the negotiations and had been more supported by Western diplomats? Absolutely. You know, I think it's not about just being involved in the negotiations. I think it's about writing the rules of the game. You know, who's allowed to write the rules of the game? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. And I think they wanted, they would have been happy to bring some people from the street pro-democracy movement if they gave up their democratic project and they just appeared as nice faces in the political arrangements that uh, the West was creating that they believed would best create a solution for the country. During the demonstrations after the coup, people were arbitrarily detained, tortured in prison, shot on the streets in cold blood. About 125 people were murdered in anti-coup protests. And all the while, um, the West uh, or Western countries, whether diplomats from the UN or, or from the US or the UK, were effectively victim blaming these people and saying, oh, how come you guys don't want to come and join the political negotiations with the people that are killing you. I mean, when framed that way, it doesn't look like the protesters were the ones not being very pragmatic. I think they're being very reasonable, actually. Um, when framed that way, it looks like actually just the West were bestowing total impunity on the generals because they thought that that would be the fastest route to ink any kind of agreement and then wash their hands of the file of Sudan. At this point, what kind of power do you think Sudanese civil society has? Is there anything that they can do to influence the outcome of this conflict? I can never say enough about them. I think they're exceptional with what they're doing now. A lot of aid organizations have suspended their work. So they're the lifeline for people right now. They are powering hospitals. They are planning uh, evacuations of people that are caught in neighborhoods with heavy clashes. They are uh, helping vulnerable families escape to safer areas, safer cities, potentially getting to Egypt. And so in a lot of ways, they have filled the entire absence of a state, as they had done, in all honesty, before the war broke out, because they're so embedded in their communities. Like These are very local. The way they operate, just to stress very shortly, each committee is in a neighborhood that essentially bestows their legitimacy through consensus. When you have that built-in credibility, that respectability, that everybody in the neighborhood knows you, is that you can call and you can continuously stress not to take sides in this war, for youth not to take sides in this war. And then this can prevent the further militarization of this conflict. And so that is so, so important for them to have this third way, this non-alignment. 
And the more that they can do that, the more that buys time for countries that have larger leverage in order to pressure the backers and pressure these two armed actors to immediately cease fighting. Wow, that is a complicated web of relationships. Thank you so much for explaining all of that and walking us through it. I really appreciate it. Anytime. All right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer this week is Ruxar Ali, and our sound designer is Yvette Sin. Filling in as senior producer is Joyta Shangupta. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McKay-Blokos. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.